as we transition to Colossians, it's, it's, I, I chose this, this letter sort of, inten- uh, not sort of, in very intentionally. We've spent the last year and a half in Luke, which it's an examination of who is Jesus, this, his life. It was a historical narrative. It explained kind of the facts about his life, what he did. Now, Colossians is a different sort of genre of writing. This is, this, this is doctrinal. This is uh, addressing who Christ is from God's understanding. This is a very lofty book explaining uh, Christ's position over the church and in human history. Uh, it's going to be very direct, and it's, an, it's a great book. I'm excited about it. We're going to pray and begin. So, Father, we do thank you and praise you uh, for this day. I thank you. Uh, for this body of believers, Lord, we thank you for our desire to study your word. And Father, as we uh, crack open this letter of Colossians, Lord, I pray that your spirit would um, would illuminate, Lord, the meaning of this book. Lord, may your grace abound as we study. Lord, may you soften our hearts. May you instruct us from your word. We do love you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have had for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also it has been constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And Father, we ask for your help now as we work our way through this passage. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So I forgot my pointer, but maybe it's here. I want to show, we, we learn right away that it is um, the location of Paul's writing is in Colossae. So if we could go to the next slide, I want to ignore this top square up here and try to focus on the background. So we, we see the boot. We know instantly the boot is what country? Italy. Okay, right here is Rome. This is the location where Paul is writing from. He's in Rome. If you travel up around, kind of go down to where modern day, um, this is modern day Greece through all of the islands. And then this region right here is modern day Turkey. So on the western shore of Turkey, we see Ephesus, where the letter of Ephesians was written to. If you go 80 miles inland, you come to Colossae. 
Uh, in that region, there's three towns. So we go to this rectangle picture, which is an expansion of the area in Turkey. So on the left side here, we'll see Ephesus on the coastline up here. 80 miles in, you see Colossae. There's a river that runs through there in the, the Laodicea Valley. Um, and there's three towns that are mentioned in the book or the letter of Colossians. You have um, Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. These are three towns that are mentioned. Of the three, Colossae is the smallest. They really are in the shadows of these two um, much larger cities. You can go back to the first slide. And so as Paul is sitting in prison in Rome under house arrest, he pins four epistles. They're known as the prison epistles. You have Colossians and Ephesians, Philemon and Philippians. Three of these letters were written together. Colossians and Ephesians and Philemon go together with one another. These three are sort of a package. We know that he penned these three letters and then he sent them, I believe with Tychicus is his name, to the area to deliver the letters. Paul had never been to the city of Colossae. He, he, as he writes Colossians, it becomes evident from early on that he's never actually met these people face to face, but he cares for them deeply. And the question is, how does he come to know about these people? How does he have this relationship? In Acts 19.10, we read this verse. It says, this uh, took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord both Jews and Greeks. And the, this took place in chapter 19. If you read it, this is Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Paul spent two years in Ephesus teaching. There in, in that chapter, we learned that he rented out a room in the middle of the day, kind of a classroom setting. People would come. He would teach them. He would equip them. He would teach them about Jesus. People came to know Christ. He would equip them to go out and to send, uh, to go out and to plant churches, to minister to the saints, to reach the world for Christ. Two people in particular are thought to have come to Christ under Paul's study in that time. The first person is Philemon. It's a short little letter uh, right before Hebrews. It's literally, there's one chapter, I think it's like 30 or so verses. Philemon was a guy who came to know Christ. He went back to the Colossae area. He allowed the church to meet in his home. And it's this beautiful story, Philemon, because Philemon became a Christian, but he also owned a slave. And this slave, Onesimus, basically ran away from him, stole from him to, to make his travels. He ends up in Rome, and in Rome, under Paul, he becomes a Christian. And we don't know the details of this, but there's a powerful story sort of linked with Colossians. As we go through Colossians, Onesimus's name's going to come up because Paul sends Onesimus back with Tychicus with the, the letter of Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon. The letter of Philemon is totally about Onesimus. And my, my heart, like as I study Colossians, I just so identify with Onesimus. Because Onesimus, as he comes to Christ and as he stunders under Paul, what I see here, the, the, the lesson from Onesimus's life is you know, when you become a Christian, you're not to run away from your past. You're to kind of confront it and take ownership and seek forgiveness and reconciliation for things that you've wronged, people you've wronged. And my life has been that way of God forcing me to do the right thing in hindsight, which is never fun. 
Like the whole unshackled story, like the thread that they chose was one of the most difficult things that I had to do. And that I had to talk to my wife and to admit to her about an abortion that I'd had in my past early on so that our, so that we could go forward and that I could speak openly on this. And then they decide to do this and to broadcast it worldwide. And it's like, okay, Lord, well, I feel good now. Like I'm definitely like it worked for good. And so as Paul pens Colossians, like Onesimus is going to travel the thousand miles back to his hometown, which he ran from to go to his owner who he stole from to basically right the wrong. And that for Philemon, this believer to receive him in grace is just a powerful thing. There's two sides. People wrong us as Christians. We embody forgiveness and reconciliation and we want restoration. And so there's this beautiful story that kind of happens under the surface of Colossians. The other person that came to the Lord under Paul's study was Epaphras. We don't know any, we really don't know about this time in Acts chapter 19, but one of the men was Epaphras. He studied, he became a Christian. He then went back to his hometown in Colossae in these, these three areas, these very, uh, you know, words that I have a hard time. Well, Laodicea, we know because Revelation. And the other one, Hyper, Hypolis. These three areas are listed in Colossians towards the end. This guy, Epaphras, ends up becoming a pastor and, and planting churches in these regions. He becomes the pastor over them. And this is really a prayer for me in this church. I've, uh, like, as we, we go through the resort process... Like, I don't know what God has in store for us, but I believe that if we're a healthy church, God is going to raise up people from, from within the midst here, children who are in Sunday school class or sitting in here studying the word of God, that God is going to move in people from this congregation's heart to go out and do things. Like one of the missionaries that we support, it blesses my heart, who's serving in East Asia, was just a kid in Sunday school class from this church years ago. And we don't know who God's going to raise up. And for those of us who teach and do Bible studies, we don't know what God's doing in the midst here. But my prayer is that God will continue to raise us up, that we would walk faithfully with him. And so the purpose of, of, of Colossians, we're going to see as this letter unfolds, Epaphras is the pastor there. He sees this issue kind of surfacing, the truth of the gospel was being basically infringed upon, that there was an attack on who Christ was. What was his importance? There was a, a term Gnosticism, comes from the word gnosko, uh, to, to knowledge and to know things. And they had said that Christ wasn't deity, that he was merely a stepping stone to deity, that you could come to know God, that they, through their keys and their secrets and their codes, that certain elite people could know the truth. Epaphras didn't know what to do, how to handle this. So he goes and he visits Paul in Rome. He goes a thousand miles to go speak with him, to ask for help. And Colossians is his response to the church there. And he addresses this, which we'll get into. Some have suggested that Ephesians is, the, is really the follow-up of Colossians. At the end of Colossians, Paul says, read the other letter that I sent to Laodicea. And when you read the, the letter of Ephesians, it's a general epistle. It's while it's a while it's a it was penned by Paul while in prison. It was kind of to to the people in Ephesus, but really to be circulated amongst the churches. And if 
Colossians addresses who Christ is in relation to the whole world. Ephesians goes into the depth that Christ is the head of the church and over the church. And and they really pair together well. Which is why I like these books so much. I mean, they're, they're intense. And before we actually start, I want to start with a quote from Charles Swindoll. He says, in the introduction to Colossians, he says, In this book, the Apostle Paul described Jesus with some of the loftiest language in all the New Testament, focusing on Christ's preeminence and sufficiency in all things. I read that from Charles Swindoll, and I think, "Uh uh-oh. Like some of the loftiest language in all the New Testament. Like, am I going to be able to to get to that altitude to to get to understand what he's talking about and then to process it in such a way that I can then communicate it in a way that we can all digest it? And I'm not going to be able to do that alone. Like there's homework today. Now, I never know if anybody ever does the homework, but I, I try to assign homework. But you'll get so much more out of Colossians if you're reading it daily and studying it. And then Sunday's a time that we come and we talk about the passage. You'll get so much more out of it. And with that, the verse, first verse begins. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. I love these old letters. Like in ancient times when they wrote a letter, they would do the, the who's it from, who's it to, right in the beginning. And I thought, oh, that would be wise to do that now. But really, we kind of do. When you, get a, when you get a letter in the mailbox, we look at the outside and we go, junk mail, junk mail, oh, bill, that's keeper. Hey, there's actually like once a year maybe, every couple years, you'll get like a handwritten letter. And every now and again, these, these like marketing people, they're tricky, like, reduce your mortgage it'll be like handwritten with your name on it and i'm like hey i got a that's a personal letter so they sucker you into opening like oh you got me oh you got me but you'll recognize a name like oh hey it's from so and so what do they have to say oh they hand wrote it so we kind of know going into the letter and so paul begins this letter and he identifies himself not personally like he did in in Philippians, Philippians, he knew them. He loved them. There was a close relationship. He starts out, I believe it's Paul, a, a fellow bond servant. But here he, he starts, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He starts with his credentials that he's an apostle, one of the few. That he was sent out by God to establish the church. He was one of the authorities in, in teaching And if you want to know more about Paul, like I could spend weeks talking about Paul. We can go back to the previous slide just for in case I didn't say that. Paul's a fascinating study. I mean, we could spend a whole year kind of looking at his life. But if you want more, there's three or three or four there. In Acts chapter nine, we see his conversion of where he came from to what he became. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, he sort of sheds his, his pedigree, what, his background in Judaism, that he was advancing amongst all of the other Jews, that when he examined the scholars and the leaders within the, the Jewish religious organization, he was the top dog. There were very few people that could match his credentials. And then you get to Galatians, this probably the very first letter that I believe that Paul wrote in the New Testament he was attacking a major, not controversy, but blasphemy, encroaching on grace. And he comes out of the gate 
with credentials and going after them because grace is so important. It's not about what, we've, what we do. It's about what Christ did for us. And there he begins his journey of, from his conversion to, to his study of basically reexamining and understanding the Old Testament that God set him apart for like 14 years. And then he comes out to share the Old Testament, the law, and how it all fits together with the Messiah coming. So it's there for you to study, and I'd encourage you to do that to get to know Paul, but we don't have time to cover that there. But he says, Paul, I'm the author, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And then he introduces Timothy, who is not an apostle, our brother. And as we look at Timothy, he was a very young man. His mother was a Jewish lady. His father was a Greek. Out of his life, his mother and grandmother raised him and taught him the things spiritually, likely came to Christ during one of Paul's very early missions trips. Paul picks him up in Lystra. And Timothy becomes kind of Paul's right-hand man, his disciple that he equips, enables. And I think when Paul died, he kind of passed the baton to Timothy to lead and guide the church. And we see these letters and the deep affection for Timothy in the letters of First and Second Timothy. And so as Paul writes, as he's pinning this, he says, Timothy and I send you our greetings. To the saints, Hagias, the, the, the holy ones set apart. The faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. So those who are believers in this area of Colossae, I'm writing this letter to y'all, to all of you. It's not to one individual, but it's to them. He goes on to say, grace to you and peace from God our Father. He takes, very common for Paul, he'd merged two very common, a Greek greeting and a Hebrew greeting that worked beautifully for the Christian life. Grace, the Greeks used. God's unmerited favor towards us. And peace, the Hebrew term, shalom. You go to Israel today, shalom is the greeting. It's kind of cool. It's like, hey, shalom. Like, this is biblical. I like it, you know. The peace from God that you can only receive through his grace, grace and peace to you. He gets into his actual letter in verse three, and he says, we give thanks to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Someone said, I haven't had the time to do the study to like really check it out. But the person was credible enough that I uh, I'll take their word for it, but I still want to check them out. He said that Paul, nowhere in the scriptures does Paul actually thank a person for, like, I give thanks to you, Daniel, because you're such a great guy. He, he appreciates everybody, but he always says, I give thanks to God for you, Daniel. Like the people that he thanks, he gives thanks to the Lord for the Lord bringing them into their life. And think how different that would be if that's how we actually gave thanks. So often after, like, a Sunday... And y'all will come up and say, oh, Gunnar, that was a great message. Good job. Well, I, I appreciate the heart. Thanks. But man, like I'd encourage you to say, hey, man, I really give thanks to God for that message. Because, like that you did the, how he used you or whatever. Because it's not me. Like you don't want to know my messages. Like it's like it's only by his grace. And if we gave thanks to people recognizing that God was the one ultimately working. See, because part of that, even the recipient like we want to kind of build ourselves up and we want to be the best in everything. And so there's a certain sort of humility that comes to somebody who says, Hey, I thank God. And people say this to me. I thank God for that message. 
that you gave. Well, there's a humbling sense because it's not about me. It's about him. And I want to be faithful to him. And if people start thanking you and appreciating you like your children, man, I thank God for you, my child, for what you're doing. And I appreciate what you're doing. It kind of submits them to the Lord and points them to God. That God is doing a work and has created them uniquely. That even when they're giving you a hard time and you're frustrated, and you're, I, I thank God that God, because obviously I need this in my life to kind of refine me as a person. It changes everything when we give thanks to God and we, we direct our thankfulness to him. And he starts out by saying, you know, I thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, subtle attack already against the Gnosticism that's creeping in. But he says, praying for you always. And in observing Paul's prayers and how he addresses problems in the church, I have so much to learn from him. He starts out like, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful to God for you. I pray for you always. He starts out so positive and, and thinks about the things to be thankful for. But he's writing to address a problem. I look at Corinthians, which is this letter that the people there were. It was a mess, that church. And yet Paul's still to the saints in Corinth. And then he starts it with all of the good things and the attributes. My tendency is to go for the jugular vein. Oh, there's a problem. Let's just like go for it. Like, let's just deal with it head on. And then maybe at the end, after all of the stuff, then tack on. Oh, yeah, I really appreciate you. Do you think the people ever get to that point? Paul starts with the positive. There's a there's a saying that you can win the argument, but lose the person. And Paul very much wants to win the person and to win the church and to teach them. And it, it does take wisdom. Because I see in the scriptures, there's Peter who like confronts and there's a time for direct confrontation. But there's a time when it's not that the issue is not to confront, it's to, to kind of address it. And Paul, as he addresses the problem, he's sort of direct, but he also kind of teaches what the truth is. And I love Paul's prayers in that if you do a study of Paul's prayers in the New Testament... His prayers are so like heavenward that he thinks about heaven and where are you in Christ and how's your walk with the Lord and the things that he prays. Now, I'm not saying that he doesn't pray for help. We see that Paul prayed that God would remove the thorn in his side, this illness that he had. So Paul obviously prayed for personal things. We see that Jesus prayed for personal things at Gethsemane. Lord, if this cup could pass me. So it's okay to pray for personal problems and situations. But when I look at the balance, he was so heavenward and looked at the eternal and his prayers were not focused on the here and now. And if they were focused on the here and now, it would that the here and now would add credit to his account for the then for that day when he stands before the Lord. And if we could learn how to pray like Paul, the church would be transformed. He continues in verse four, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all of the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth. Now, in this verse, there's three words that that repeat throughout the New Testament. Paul sort of coined, I don't know if he coined them, if that's the right thing to say, but from from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, faith, hope, and love, and all of these, you know that, those three words, faith, hope, and love, they're right here, but he, he flips the order. 
So since we heard of your faith, well, where did he hear of this? We're going to see that it's Epaphras. The pastor who cared so much about them came and he raves to Paul about the good things. And there's this concern, but he's Paul still focusing on all the good news that he's heard. He said, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love, which you have for the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, of these three words, Norman Geisler says this. Faith is the soul looking upward to God. Love looks outward to others and hope anticipates the future. In a certain sense, when he says your faith in Christ Jesus, it's looking backward to what Christ did on the cross. When I look at all sort of religious systems and religion, when you go outside of evangelical Orthodox Christianity, it says you do this to earn merit with God. But Christianity, biblical Christianity says Christ did it for you. And that takes great faith. I mean, I have a, the Bible tells us that some 2,000 years ago that God became man. He lived a perfect life, and then he died on a cross. He was buried for three days, and on the third day he rose. He walked the earth for 40 days, and then he ascended into heaven. It doesn't happen every day. And I'm not ashamed to kind of say, that's kind of, oh, man, that's kind of a hard pill to swallow like in my journey to christ and looking at the evidence it's like ah this just it pushes my brain and my thinking beyond what i can understand but then when you start investigating the truth like case for christ and lee strobel and the evidence around this well if you're a christian that means that you reached a point in your life where you by faith you trust in this now there's a bible translator he was a missionary somewhere to some people group that I have, like, I don't even know the people group or whatever. But when he was trying to find the right word or phrase to explain faith to this people, what he came upon was the idea of to place your full weight on something, that you can trust it to support you the whole way. And that's what faith is, looking back to Christ and to realizing, like, no, his work on the cross, he paid it all. It's finished. My relationship with God is contingent on what he did, not what I do. And that takes faith. And then when you realize, like, man, that God loved me so much that he stepped out of heaven to live this perfect life so that I might be reconciled to God through Christ, it's overwhelming. And then this love that overflows from God into our lives, we can't help but to share it with other people, which is the next thing he says, that your faith in Christ and the love which you have for all of the saints that their relationship with God through Christ then bubbles out into displaying love to others. What I love so much, one of the things I love so much about Valley Baptist Church, even from the very first day, like when I was totally sick driving up here, not sick because I was sick, but sick because I was nervous. I wanted to throw up. <laughs> you know, walking in, it was like eight elderly people. And they wanted a pastor. They wanted somebody to kind of get the church going. Like, I remember, like, walking away. Like, as Anna and I were driving away, and I said, you know what? The one thing that struck me, there were a bunch of, there were eight elderly people, but they all actually seemed to, like, love Jesus. And they were so loving and so kind. And there's a whole lot of churches that aren't filled with love. And over this course of the last five years, when people visit and I hear back from people, like, one of the things that I hear is that, man, the people there are so loving. And like they care about us. 
And some of you are, might be here today because when you walked in, that you were greeted with love. And it, that blesses me more than anything. And Paul's praising them for this. And then he says, like, as I hear about your love for the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, which you've previously heard in the word of truth. Now, he's going to start addressing truth. Truth is a big issue with Gnosticism. If you want to know truth, then you've got to come to us. And we have a whole lot of secrets and we have the right keys. And if you if a select few will be allowed in and then we'll unlock these keys of truth for you that you might know the way of God. But Paul subtly like injecting these words of truth. But he talks about this hope laid up for you. That phrase laid up for you in heaven is a unique word. It's only used a couple times in the New Testament. And, and the, the one that stood out to me most was in Luke chapter 19, verse 20. When Jesus is telling the parable about the minas and, and the one guy who just took the one and he buried it away in a safe place. He, he put it in his handkerchief. It says, your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. To store in a safe place that nobody could steal it or that it would be secure. I have all kinds of places like that, but I can never remember where it is. And so I got say I got things that are so protected, but I can't tell you where they are to find them. But that that word which I kept put away is this word hold that we see in Colossians. The the hope laid up for you in heaven. That that there's this inheritance, that there's this reward in heaven that that our life today and our faith and how we live out there's this hope for that coming day the then and it's secure there's no taking it away or losing it and it's just this beautiful picture for paul praising them and he goes into as verse five ends as you heard the word of truth which has come to you in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understand the grace of God and truth. There's that truth again. This is, this is, it's, he doesn't say, hey, I'm attacking Gnosticism, but in this statement, he's addressing the truth of God, the gospel, which has come to you. Epaphras came and brought the gospel to this region in Colossae that they became believers in Christ Lives were transformed, and not just in Colossae, but it had been traveling throughout the whole world, which is hyperbole. I made sure I looked it up because Abigail's going to get her literature degree, and I really wanted to make sure that I got the right one, so I looked it up. Hyperbole means it's an exaggeration to make a point. Like, did, Has it literally gone out to the whole world? No, the gospel's still going out. But into all of the regions, the gospel was going out and changing people's lives. And it was bearing fruit, the life transformation, which is totally opposite, which the Gnostics were telling them that there was a secrecy that you really had to unpack. And Paul says, no, the simplicity of the gospel that Jesus died, was buried. He rose again on the third day and he did this for your sins that you might have a relationship with God. And in believing in that, you have reconciliation. That truth was going out. Lives were changing and it was evident that it was exploding. There were no codes. There were no secrets. God has manifested his word in a way that we can all understand. And the fact that we all sit here with Bibles that you own. And if you don't own one, you can easily own one. Just take the one that's in your chair. It's not stealing. It's a gift. Whenever Rick starts a Bible study, it's really funny. He says, how many Bibles do each of you have in your home? It's like, well, does computer count? I don't know, man. <laughs> just in English? 
Because even on my computer, I've got like every language that I don't even know how to speak, but it's there. This is something that's not normal in human history. Like the fact that we all have a copy of the scriptures and there are people that have been trying to destroy the scripture. There have been religious organizations trying to withhold the scriptures so that they could be the ones. God has given us the word. It's you can understand it. You can read it. And through the spirit, you can understand what it's saying. And we want you to do that. And Paul's telling them the gospel's going out. It's bearing fruit. And it's happened in your life and it's happening all over. I'm getting reports from everywhere. Verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras. He now speaks of their pastor. You know, they all know Epaphras. He's the one who started the churches in these three cities. Our beloved fellow bond servant who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. Here Paul like then endorses their pastor. Here's the apostle, the great apostle Paul. And he says, Epaphrod is a fellow bondservant. We love him, trust him. We've heard from him, which he says in verse 8. But here Epaphras comes to Paul. He says, you know, Paul, a lot of great stuff is happening in Lystra. Epaphras knew Paul, studied there. Who knows how long he was there for the two years that Paul was in Ephesus. He says, oh, great things are happening. The gospel is going out. The church is forming. But the, the, the Gnosticism, that this, this syncretism, which means that the church is beginning to synchronize with the culture and they're, they're adapting things that are not necessarily biblical. It's like, I don't know how to handle this. I don't quite know how to handle this. And I love that as a pastor, he's thinking through, he's examining, what do we do? Every year around Christmas time, I start really kind of like, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm taking down the cross and I'm putting up this tree in the sanctuary with little red bulbs and lights. And how does this fit? Like, am I sacred? And there, and there are some on the extreme that says, oh, no, there shouldn't be in the church. And then there's, well, we live in this culture. Christmas is such a big thing. It's such, a, it's such an opportunity to share Christ that having a Christmas tree, you can redeem the Christmas tree to bring the cross to it, which is kind of where I settle every year as I do that. And I try to keep the decorations down as, as much as possible. But I identify with this brother Epaphras. It just, just on May 5th, I got the call that Alberto had a heart attack and he was taken to the hospital. And suddenly like our Spanish ministry was good. It, there was this, this hiccup because as you look at churches in, in the Hispanic culture, there's a bunch of variety. There's some that are not so maybe Orthodox or evangelical in their teaching. We have a gem in Alberto. There are very few men like Alberto. And so then I was concerned initially, like, oh, no, like, here's this vacuum. And there could be well-meaning groups that want to come in and kind of start doing stuff that I wouldn't necessarily agree with. But my Espanol is very un poquito, <laughs> very limited. And so how like if it was the same thing could be said in English groups, just as just as much as in Spanish groups. But with an English person coming in, I can vet them and say, hey, what do you think about this? What's your doctrine? What are you going to be teaching but Spanish, like I, 
I can look at stuff and they could look one way in their expression, but it doesn't necessarily mean that their doctrine is off. And so what did I do? Brother one, my father-in-law, I need some help, John. Like, man, I like have plane tickets to Cleveland and tonight's critical and I need somebody. Can you come and meet with our Spanish group? Because I trust you, but I don't know how to handle this because I don't have the language and I know what I want to communicate and I know that you'll communicate what I want to say to them because you discipled me as a pastor. And so John came in that first night. He's like, no, I can't do this every night or every Sunday, but I'll come in because I know these guys. I love them and I'll talk to them and we'll get together. And they had a great talk, you know, say, well, how do you guys get, how do you guys communicate with one another? Well, we call Alberto and then Alberto talks to us. Okay. Well, that's not going to work for at least the next month or so. So let's get all your numbers. And he sat down and started talking through with them. And then he's like, okay, there's three brothers, Carlos, Juan, and Leonardo. They're going to do a preaching rotation. Be praying for these brothers. And last night I was at church and I was so blessed. I was here. The three guys came to the front door to get, it was Carlos's father-in-law's birthday. And I saw them. Leonardo speaks about as much English as I speak Spanish. Which works because we can we can then bridge the gap with Carlos. It's like there's like he doesn't speak any English, but he's a dear brother in the Lord. And I was like, hey, guys, como se dice en español prayer? Oro, oro. I've been praying for you and I've been I'm so encouraged by, you know, <laughs> tres amigos <laughs> that you're stepping up. And they're like, oh, God has been so gracious and God has been so like helping us. And I said, amen, brother. That's what I say every week. And I'm like, there, you, don't, you don't come to learn the word until you start teaching the word, or at least in my, who, who I am. And so to see these three brothers that through, I didn't have a letter, John came and talked. But Epaphras is right there. He sees that the people that he loves. And if you're not in a church where your pastor loves you and cares about you and is concerned about your spiritual well-being, like as I look at this letter, their action the things that they're doing, their love, which is so important, their externals seem to be going really well. Now, later in Colossians, we're going to see that some of this, this Jewish mysticism and Gnosticism, the syncretism, was working into stuff that Paul's going to address more directly. But at front, Paul says himself in 1 Corinthians, that of all things, that love is the most important. When they seem to have nailed this, yet Paul cares about what they think. And Epaphras comes and he says, I love them so much and they're doing so good, but I have this concern. And so the correction to this concern is this letter Colossians to them. That was verse eight. He's informed us of your love in the spirit. And then suddenly Paul kind of says, hey, I know about what's going on because your pastor came to me and talked to me and all this good stuff. I'm going to start addressing some issues here. But Paul's so concerned about their minds, like what we think about God matters. Like it, it, the Bible makes it very clear that your knowledge of God, what he's revealed matters. Our, our, our practice, the Bible definitely addresses like how we live out our lives. But that in itself isn't enough. Like our knowledge affects our behavior. The two are linked. 
And it's something I've been wrestling with, like, like not just, just now, but, but over the course of the last, like, 10 years. Like, how much truth is required to know in order for your, like, faith to work out? Now, salvation is based upon faith in Christ alone. But I remember it was like in 2000 and, well, it was after I was married, so in the last 10 years, being at the, the temple in Salt Lake City, or not the temple because you're not allowed in there, but the visitor center and seeing all of the Bible, like King James all across, I'm like, man, like, this is like, like I'm like walking through their temple and they're all, all the girls because they send the girls to, the, to this place, the temple. And I'm like, no, no, I don't need to talk to you right now. I'm just like, I'm like just reading the Bible. I'm like, wait a minute. With these verses... Somebody could come to faith in Christ. And then they end up here. They get taught all this stuff. Like, and so how does this work? And clearly through Colossians and most of the New Testament, we see that there's this, def- this, this defense or I don't know if defense is the right word, this offense for fighting for the minds of believers in Christ because what you think about God matters, which I'll probably expand on that later. I think I'm getting ahead of myself. And so... And verse 9, begin, Paul begins to share with them his prayer. He says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, Epaphras coming to him, sharing this stuff, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge. Here's knowledge and truth of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is the prayer that they would understand God's will. I hear Christians say this all the time or all people. I want to know God's will in my life. How do we know God's will in my life? Well, God has revealed himself, what he cares about through his word. Now, the problem is, is there's not a Bible in the, there's not a book in the Bible that will tell you, like, should I buy this car or not buy this car? Should I marry this person or not this person? But I believe that there's principles that we can discover from the scripture that we can pray upon. And then God says, hey, whatever you choose through prayer. But he begins to pray that they would have this understanding of God's will, that it could be known that they didn't have to go through all these hoops of secrets and codes and that there was a mystery. We still see this in our day. There's a you can go to Amazon, the Bible code. It was popular probably 15 years ago, 10 years ago, 12 years ago. That, oh, they looked at the manuscripts and if you read every 10th letter and then you took that letter, then you went 10 more letters It unlocked this code within the scriptures that can guide you no 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 the plain things are the main things and the main things are the plain things like like the scripture as you read it that's what it says there's no mystery to be unlocked read it in context and what does it say as a whole that's how we discover these things and at the heart of paul's prayer was to fight this this battleground of gnosticism which ultimately said that Jesus is not God, that he was merely a stepping stone, that Jesus couldn't be God because he was in the flesh and all flesh is evil. Therefore, he can't be God. And Paul is going to give us the greatest understanding of who Christ is as Colossians unfolds. Verse 10, so that the purpose clause that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We pray that you would understand the will of God, that have knowledge of him, 
the purpose that you would live out your lives in a manner that's worthy. This word worthy is axios, which is where we get our word axiom from. Something that balances out. Like the old hymn, which I love so much. You guys are probably sick of me quoting it every week. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. He, he saved you. He redeemed you. You did nothing but place your faith in him. It's like the old Western movies. If somebody saves your life, you like owe your life to them. Like without Christ, we have nothing. He's not asking much of us but to follow him and to love him. And if we understand his will and what he's done, then our lives will walk worthy. We'll live out our faith that will please him, that our lives, how we live out, it affects God's emotions. We're told that don't like if you sin that you can grieve the Holy Spirit, but we can also please him if we're walking with him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Knowledge pops up yet again. Verse 11, strengthen with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. And if Colossians is linked with Ephesians and he says strengthen with all power, he prays that you'd be strengthened with all power. This word power is when we discovered or created dynamite. It's like, hey, what, what, how, what should we name this stuff that blows up pretty impressive? What word is there in our in our vocabulary that we can kind of accredit because dynamite didn't exist back then, but they pulled from this word power, dunamis. And in Ephesians 1.19, when Paul looks at the same word and he says that he wants, he prays that we would understand the power that works in us by God, this power he accredits to the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that ascended him into heaven, that placed all things in subjection to him, that that power of God is working in us who believe in Christ. He says, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, steadfastness or stay steady is like becoming, thanks to Alistair Begg, one of my new favorite like emails. A couple of you have already read me. Stay steady. First Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. Steadfastness and patience in the English language seem very like, kind of like, oh, that's awesome, steadfastness, just to be steady, even keeled, to be patient, just, you know, that you don't get upset. When you go to the origin of these words, the, the literal translation of steadfastness is patient endurance. Like, to be able to endure something, like, miserably, patiently, just in the midst of it to endure it. And then when you look at patience, it means long-suffering. Like as you're suffering, long-suffering. And how do we acquire this like steadfastness? Like I want to be, like when I sign these emails, it's more about a reminder to me to stay steady. Don't let this world kind of get you all flustered. Stay steady. How do we acquire this steadfastness, this patience that we can suffer long in this world? What well, goes back to earlier where he says your hope that's been stored up in heaven. One of the days this week, I go to the hospital every day pretty much to visit Alberto. But on th- it was Thursday because after like five weeks off, I decided I'd go hit up the gym again after a little hiatus. And I learned, hey, somebody from the gym, they're in the hospital. I'm like, oh, really? Yeah, they thought she got meningitis. I'm like, hey, I go there. I'll just make a pit stop. It's really great when there's multiple people in the hospital because I can like, you know, <laughs> Oh, he's like, kill two birds with one stone. You know, you go in, pit stop at the seventh floor. Say, hey, how are you doing? Oh, it's so great that you came to see me. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, 
anything for you. I'm going to go up to the ninth floor to see so-and-so. But in there talking to this person who they were trying to discover she had meningitis. She's a believer. She said something that just like blessed me. Like most of the time I go to visit people in the hospital to bless them and they end up totally encouraging me. She said, yeah, this has been the worst sort of thing I've been going through. Like numbness in her hands. Uh, She's like, I've always gotten migraines, but this was unlike anything that I ever had. And if the doctors are suspecting meningitis where they actually do the spinal tap, you're in, ba- you're in a rough place. She looks at me and she's like, you know what? But God has just been so gracious. Like at every turn where things could have gotten worse, it went the right direction. And this whole time, all I can think about is a sermon I heard 10 years ago when the pastor said that this life is the worst it's ever going to be for the Christian. And I looked around and said, yeah, and it's the best it's ever going to be for a non-believer. And it's like, how do, how do you face, like, like being in the hospital for multiple days with suspecting meningitis or Alberto two floors up who's been there for a month with heart surgery and he's in pain trying to walk again and he's doing better. But you endure this, this steadfastness, this patience, because this life isn't it. It's about the next life, the hope that we have stored up in heaven. And when you keep your eyes focused on the eternal things, if my memory serves me right, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, and I was correct, Paul writes, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep thinking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not the things on this earth. Our hope is there. And if our hope is there, what happens now, it doesn't really matter. We just want to live our life now so that then we'll be rewarded. That now we'll bring glory to him. We're getting close to the end here. Colossians is just so good. Joyously giving thanks. Just, just say that. Joyously giving thanks. Come on, no, no, say it. Joyously giving thanks. Joyously giving thanks. I went to bed last night just look, like I think I was just harassing Anna. But it's like, you just can't say joyously giving thanks without a smile on your face. It just makes you feel good. Joyously giving thanks. It kind of sounds a little bit hokey. Like the lights are off, 15 minutes have passed. Like, joyously giving thanks. She's like, I'm trying to go to sleep. I'm like, joyously giving thanks. I'm like, come on, joyously giving thanks. It's just kind of like, it's the word, like joyously giving thanks to the Father. Awesome. Joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saint, saints in light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of, of sins. The whole joyously giving thanks to the Father. And then all of these reasons sort of unpack. The first is because he qualified us. There are people today, I have friends running the rock and roll marathon in San Diego. And their purpose of running is they're trying to attempt to get a speed that will qualify them for the Boston Marathon. That they're going through all of this work, all of this training, hoping to get a time that's good enough that the Boston Marathon will say, okay, you've qualified, you can race with us. There are people all over striving to try to attain entrance into heaven and you cannot do it on your own merit. 
But if you're in Christ, you're qualified for heaven because the father who did it to share in the inheritance. And this word inheritance is the same idea that when Joshua entered the land of Israel and then they divided the land to the people, the the tribes of Israel. To share in the inheritance. If you're in Christ, there's like it's like the picture is that there's a, a little portion of land in heaven that's like reserved for you. Like, I don't know that my brain can fully understand what it's saying there because I don't think there's going to be like deeds up in heaven, but there's like a little place up there that God's given to us in his trust. The second thing we see is that he rescued us from the dominion of darkness, that you were dead in your sins and trespasses apart from Christ, as he says in Ephesians 2. Ephesians also says that not that you were just in the shadows, which I mentioned a couple weeks ago, like I always read it in Ephesians like, oh, I was really just this, I was even apart from Christ. I was, I was this little bit of goodness and I just hovered in the shadows like around people who were bad. But Paul says you were, those of you who were formerly darkness, that you were darkness. But he qualified us for this inheritance. He rescued us from the dominion of darkness and he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That 1 Corinthians 12, 13 talks about this baptism that you were dead in Adam. And when you believed in Christ, you were placed from that body, transferred over into the body of Christ. That you're, you're located positionally in another position. That you're in the kingdom of his beloved son. And there you have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. This is amazing. And as I look at this introduction... There's a couple of things that stand out to me. I wrote them down. I almost want to read these points. The first thing I see as I, as I begin to study Colossians, the first thing is that this book challenges us, challenge the importance of knowledge. In a world that seems most concerned with practice, what we think about God matters. Like it's not just about our behavior like Alistair Begg at the conference, our goal as pastors, because he's talking to a group of pastors, our goal is not behavioral modification, but is life transformation that only comes through the gospel of Christ. But what we believe matters. In a world where that's dominated by what I think about God, well, I think this about God. Or, oh, I think this about God. Well, I'm a Christian. I believe this. Well, I'm a Buddhist and I believe this. And that we want to establish what we think about God and that that becomes the law. But the reality is that God has made himself known through Christ. He's revealed himself through the word of God. It's not for us to define who God is. It's for us to come to understand what God has revealed about himself. Kind of the third point, I kind of merged the two there. As we, as we rightly come to understand who God is, as we study his word, as we go through Colossians and we learn about what God has revealed about himself, it affects how we live our lives. What you think up here translates into how you live out your life. I think in the Hebrew mind, they, they often, like what we talk about our heart and mind, it actually was their guts. Like the word is like some word to mean guts. Like what you, the, the deep things within you, your core beliefs, the things that you hold true, affect how you live out your life. And I remember like, you know, now we're on Facebook. There used to be MySpace 
10 years ago. I just entered into the pastoral ministry. I wanted nothing to do with really social media. But then I felt obligated as I was working with youths that I would get a MySpace account. And then I was really kind of, I came to sort of a crisis of what's going on here. Here are all these good Christian kids in Awanas that when I meet them face to face, they're like spouting out more Bible than I can spout out. Then I go onto their MySpace page and it's like, whoa, who's this kid? Which one's the real kid? When if you have deep convictions about who God is, I guarantee your stuff would not be on Facebook or MySpace or, or how you present to yourself to the world. It's not about putting on this facade, but if you deeply understand who God is, it's going to affect how you live your life. And as I read Colossians, this, this idea of like God's transforming power of our minds, as we renew our minds, as it affects how we live our life, like Onesimus, this little guy, like I don't know if he was little, but I so identify with him at this because I... Like, here's Paul in his office under house arrest. He's writing all these letters. Like, if I was Onesimus going, man, he's writing a letter to Philemon. Like, my flesh would say, I'm going to hit the road. I'm not going back to my slave owner who I stole from. But, but Paul, as he discipled Onesimus and said, if you've come to understand who Christ is and you've trusted in him, it affects your behavior. And for you, you need to go address this because you're not going to be able to move forward in your walk with Christ until you restore this relationship. A thousand mile journey, Onesimus, Tychicus, and a couple other guys. Tychicus has got that letter to his slave owner. This is a hard thing. But the gospel, when it takes root in our heart, it forces us to mend wrongs that we've done. And so the homework, I'd encourage you to read Colossians every day while we're in it, six weeks. It doesn't take, I think it takes like 10 minutes. It's simple. Like I read it to Grace and she's like, dad, that was really cool. Like you can read the Bible to your kids and they'd love it. Read it to your spouse, read it to yourself. As you read it out loud, because when you hear it out loud, it sort of sometimes you catch stuff that if you read individual like privately in your mind it would it would you just wouldn't notice it but as you're reading colossians i would encourage you to pray colossians 1 9 through 14 for yourself you can personalize prayers in the bible let me give you an example i wrote it down i took colossians 1 9 and my prayer is that we would all pray this prayer as we go through colossians and so when you convert a prayer in scripture, you just kind of change the things. So it would go like this. Father, fill me with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that I will walk in a manner worthy of you to please you in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of you. Strengthen me with all power according to your glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to you, who has qualified me to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For you rescued me from the dominion of darkness and transferred me to the kingdom of your beloved son, in whom I have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Can you imagine if you prayed that prayer? 
you're praying in line with God's will because it's his word. If you're reading Colossians every day and praying that, like if you just took 15 minutes every day when you woke up, prayed that prayer, and then read Colossians, can you imagine what would happen to your life? I guarantee you that your life would be transformed slowly but surely because God's word does not return void. He wants us to know about him. He wants our lives I want this truth in my life. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to grow in our knowledge of you. Father, we pray that, uh, Lord, as we study Colossians, Lord, you would help us to understand Christ's preeminence and sovereignty and authority over all creation, both in heaven and on earth. Lord, I pray that you would expand our understanding. Lord, help the truth of your word to go into our minds, to our hearts. Lord, may it seep through every aspect of our life. Lord, we desire this transformation that we read about in the scriptures. We pray that you would do a work in our lives. And as you're working in our lives, Lord, there may be things that we need reconciliation for relationships that we need to make the first step and so father we look to the example of onesimus lord and the courage that he had to go back and so lord we pray that you would help us to be like him and maybe there are people that are coming to us lord to ask our forgiveness and lord we pray that you would lord you would remove the desires of our flesh and of of the world's teaching, Lord, that we could be like Philemon, that we could receive apologies and, 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 and people that are desiring reconciliation with us, Lord, that you would help us to, to be people that are full of grace and love. Father, we pray that as we have faith back to the cross and to think about our life transformation through the cross, we pray, Lord, that the love that you've imparted to us would just pour out amongst the people around us. Father, we look forward in hope to heaven. We pray that you would help us to live our lives in a way that one day when we stand before you, we'll hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Lord, we need your help. We're not perfect. And so, Lord, we look to you. We love you, Father. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.